0: Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we open up and listen to God's word together. Today's message is part four in Pastor DJ Richie's Sunday morning series on Elijah. This message was given on January 24th, 2021. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. And when you do, you'll receive a notification each time we post a new message and will always be up to date. We hope this encourages you in your relationship with Christ, and if it does, we would love to connect with you in person sometime. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it.
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your love. God, we thank you that we can cast all of our cares upon you because you truly care for us. And God, your ministering to us, God, and, and working things out, God, in ways that we can't understand. But, God, we uh, God, need that reminder that we can trust your hand, we can trust your heart, because you have already demonstrated your incredible, infinite love for us, God, in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and raising him from the dead. You offer us that forgiveness, that entrance into your family, God. And so God, as we open your word today, God, may we have a deeper appreciation for your heart for us and for all that you have done and continue to do. We love and thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Life is a battle every day. Every day is a new battle. It's a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Between the God of this age and the God of all ages. Between the prince of this world and the prince of peace who is king of kings and lord of lords. And friend, you, whether you like it or not, whether you are a willing participant or not, you are part of that battle. And every day is a battle. Every day is an opportunity for victory or defeat. Yesterday's victory does not guarantee today's victory. But yesterday's defeat also does not guarantee today's defeat either. Amen. I remember as a kid watching ABC's Wide World of Sports, and at the beginning, uh, the, the part that I really remember, was that skier coming down the hill. That's not the same skier. This is a more recent picture. But every week, we were promised stories of the thrill of victory and the Agony of defeat. And as we're going to see from 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning, sometimes those victories and those defeats are separated by hours. Sometimes those highs and lows, those victories and defeats, don't come weeks apart or years apart, but hours apart. Now we've been looking at the testimony of the prophet Elijah. Elijah. For the past number of weeks, Uh, Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. Tells us a lot about his parents and their commitment to the Lord to name their son that name. And so in the spirit of uh, Elijah's parents, we named our son Elijah so that everybody would know that our God is Yahweh, that our God is is the Lord of Lords. But Elijah, his life is really a testimony of God. It's really a testimony of his God and how God works and how God works in our lives, through our lives. Remember what the book of Romans tells us, that the things that were written beforehand were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of Scripture, we might have hope. God wants us to have hope, He wants us to be comforted with His Word, but there's going to be patience involved. There's going to there's be a process involved where God is going to teach us patience. And the reason that He wants us to learn patience is because He is patient with us. Now, we've seen over the last number of weeks that when we pursue the presence of God and depend on the provision of God, accepting the perplexity of God that we're never going to understand completely the infinite God that we serve or why He does what He does. But when we accept the perplexity of God, when we submit to the purity of God and worship Him and Him alone, then we are ready to experience the power of God. And in 1 Kings 18 last week, we saw so vividly displayed for us the working of the power of God through the obedience of the prophet Elijah. These are Statements of faith, their truths that we must confess by faith, but as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must also walk by faith. We have to claim these things and then live them out. And the sad reality is that we fail in that many times. There are many times, even though we know the truth, we know that God will provide, we still stumble in our dependence on Him. Even though we know that God is pure and He demands singular worship where our hearts, just like the Israelites, are divided. And so we take our eyes off of the presence of God. We don't depend on the power of God. What then? It's then that we learn to appreciate the patience of God. See, when our faith falters, he remains faithful to us and The power of God, as amazing as it is, would not be all that wonderful a thing for us, if not for the heart and patience of God as well. And so today we want to take some encouragement from the way that God patiently dealt with his servant Elijah, because it's the same patience that is extended to us. Now, let's look together. 1 Kings chapter 19, as we begin to consider the patience of God. And we'll read a section of this verse. And we're going to find that Elijah went from Mount Carmel and the great victory, the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat under a juniper tree. But it's there that he began to experience the patience of his God in, in his life. And so we won't read this entire chapter, but let's begin reading in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And withal how he had slain, Elijah had slain all the prophets of Baal with the sword, 450 of them. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time and when he saw that he arose and he went for his life and came to Beersheba which belongeth to Judah and left his servant there but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said it is enough I've reached the end I am out of energy, I'm out of hope, God just take me now, have you ever been there, I've been there, have you been there, now I say this a lot because I, having worked in, uh, as a social, social um, work, having worked with kids, who were uh, heavily medicated and uh, who had a lot of issues both in uh, partial hospitalization and full ho- hospitalization that uh, please, if you have any kind of thoughts of self-harm or um, suicidal thoughts, please get help for that. Please let somebody know. It, it may be a medication issue. It may be something that, it, that, it, that you're taking that's affecting you in the exact opposite way that you intend. Um, Please understand you are not alone in feeling that. And we are here for you and and other people, we we want to help you. Please reach out. You're not alone. Elijah felt that way. We're going to see others in just a moment who felt that way. But we find Elijah having gone from the peak, literally and figuratively, Of spiritual victory to within a day is now on the run, and shortly after that, under a juniper tree, asking God to take his life. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, let's walk through these verses together. Chapter 19 begins with the rage of Jezebel. We see Jezebel's rage. Jezebel is an incredibly wicked king. Jesus in Revelation tells us that she's actually symbolic of spiritual adultery. What Jezebel did was not try to replace the worship of the God of Israel, but she came from Sidonia and When she became queen of Israel, she decided that she was going to add her gods to the worship of Yahweh. Oh, you can still worship Yahweh. Go right ahead. So long as you also worship my gods. And the people agreed. And she led her husband and the people into the worship of Baal and of Asherah who was the sister-wife of Baal. It gets twisted when you look at those mythologies. We, we look at mythology as, as a historical curiosity. We, we have to remember that there were people who actually believed those stories and were worshiping those gods. And, in fact, that's still going on today, believe it or not. So we see Jezebel raging at the beginning of this chapter. See, the prophets of Baal had been defeated. They'd been slain. But Jezebel had kept her prophets in reserve, and she was still there. Let me talk to the younger people here just for a second. I've, I've played a few video games in my day, in my time. I've, I've played a few video games. In fact, I was just Reminiscing this morning, my, my friend uh, Jamie and I, when I was in high school, we used to go down to Hills, back when there was still a Hills down there, and they had those arcade machines up in the front of Hills, and we used to pour the quarters, and we'd play bad dudes, and we'd play heavy barrel, and we'd play all these fun games. And, and when you're playing a video game, many times you get through a level, and you fight all of these dozens, maybe even hundreds of little... Minor villains. But then at the end of the level, there's a boss battle. And if you're not expecting it, you might find that you're pumping those quarters back in that machine to keep playing. And that the boss battle is what all of that practicing is supposed to be preparing you for. And it's like Elijah got to the end of the level and he didn't realize. That he hadn't beaten the boss yet, yeah. Jezebel's still there, and so what does Elijah do? See that 's a silly illustration, but see we 're not playing a game. this isn't a game. Elijah retreats. Elijah throws his controller down, he rage quits, and he he retreats now. I want want you to see this very clearly. This is not the same thing that Jonah did. Jonah was running away from God. We're going to see in a moment, Elijah was actually running to God. But he was still running away from the battle God had called him to fight. He's running to God, but he's running away from the mission that God had assigned him to. And so he's not committing the same sin as Jonah, but... It's having the same effect. He's relying now on his own strength, and his own strength gets him all of 24 hours to the next day before he's ready to not just quit the fight, but quit life altogether. In his own strength, he despaired of life. As I said a few moments ago, he's not the first. He wasn't the last. Jonah... Jonah 4, 3, therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah despairs of life after his victory. Because he finally goes to Nineveh and he preaches, and people repent and they get saved, and they turn to the God of the, of the Israelites. They turn to the one true God, Yahweh, repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And Nine, uh, Nineveh isn't destroyed, and we find out the big twist at the end of the story. Sorry if I'm spoiling it for you. I, uh, uh, hopefully you've read Jonah already, and you, and you know how the story ends, but it's a big twist ending because Jonah is not running away from God because he's afraid of the Ninevites. He's running away from God because he's afraid that God's going to forgive them, and he wants God to destroy them. And, and the big twist is that when God does forgive them and God spares the city, and Jonah's sitting up on the hill trying to get this... This front row seat to to God raining uh, hellfire down on the city like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And it doesn't happen. And and Jonah is is angry at God. And he despairs of life. Jonah felt that way. But, you know, Moses felt that way too. Numbers chapter 11. Moses, uh, the great lawgiver. The only other prophet other than Jesus Christ Himself, the Son of God, who God says, I, I, I speak to Moses face to face. I don't speak to him in visions. I don't speak to him in dreams. I don't send angels when I want to speak to Moses. I speak to him face to face. And yet even Moses, who saw God face to face, spoke to God face to face. He saw the, God pass by. He saw the, the back uh, uh, shadow of His glory. Yet even Moses said, I am not able to bear all this people alone. It is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. He got to the end of himself because he was trusting in himself. He got to the end of his energy because he was relying on his own power. And Moses, who had performed all those miracles by God's power and had done all those great things, where now we're in the... We're after the Exodus. We're in the book of Numbers. And Moses says, God, just take me. That's where Elijah was. But here's the rest of the story Elijah's story doesn't end under a juniper tree. We've seen Jezebel rage and Elijah retreat, but I want you to know that Yahweh restores. Yahweh restores. And so God is going to patiently work with Elijah. He's going to meet his needs. He's going to meet his physical needs, his emotional and psychological needs, and his spiritual needs because God really does care for all of your needs. Psalm 80, verse 3, Turn us again, O God, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 7, Of Psalm 80, turn us again, O God of hosts, cause thy face to shine. We shall be saved. Verse 19, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine. We shall be saved. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Hebrews says, when we get there, and we will, if you haven't been there lately, just be prepared. Life is a battle. Every day's a battle. But focus on Jesus. He will supply all of our needs, He has promised us, according to His riches and glory. He'll supply the needs that we have when we trust in Him. And so we see the restoration of Yahweh. Let's read what happens together, beginning in verse 5. And as He, Elijah, "...lay and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord..." This is the angel of the Lord now, who is here, "...came again the second time and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days." And forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came hither unto a cave and lodged there. Why did Elijah run? What was it that was happening in his heart that took him from spiritual victory to within 24 hours, spiritual defeat? The same thing was happening in his heart that happens in our hearts, that takes us from spiritual victories to spiritual defeat. I was reading in Warren Wiersbe's commentary on this passage, and Wiersbe said that the church fathers, the ancient church fathers, had a saying, beware of human reactions after holy exertions. Beware of human reactions after holy exertions. Let me give you four spiritual warning lights that were going off in Elijah's life and heart that should have caused him to get his heart looked at, to take it to the shop. Anybody got a check engine light? I've had, we've had an issue with the Jeep over the last year where the check engine light wouldn't go off, and then it went off, and we've had it in the shop. and, and It was minor things. My minor issues that, that needed to be taken care of, but a minor issue can become a major issue if we don't address it. And these are warning lights that were going off in Elijah's life that should have told him, hey, I'm, setting, I'm getting set up for, for a fall. I need to be extra careful. Some of these things are beyond our control. Some of them are not. But let's look at some warning lights that we see in Elijah's life. Why did Elijah run? Well, here's the first one. We've talked about this over the past couple weeks. Prolonged isolation. Prolonged isolation. Now, seasons of isolation may be necessary. God sent him into isolation. God sent him to the brook. and Then God sent him to a, to a, a widow, Gentile woman who had a young child. And I'm sure that there was a friendship that got struck up there, but she had she had no spiritual maturity. In fact, apparently, until her son is even resurrected, she doesn't completely and fully trust in the God of Elijah. And so he's surrounded for three and a half years with ravens and spiritually immature or unsafe people, and he is spiritually isolated and again those seasons may happen without our choice. And some of, you are, some of you are watching today because you are forced into isolation because of health concerns. You have very legitimate health concerns because of the virus or other uh, reasons that you are homebound. And so seasons of isolation may come, but please understand they should not be normative. They should not be something that we choose out of convenience. True fellowship fuels faith. True fellowship is what fuels our faith faith proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: iron sharpeneth iron so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend and as somebody who has gone through the conquer series three times i would encourage you if you have not gone through the conquer series that pastor nick is going to be leading here in just a few weeks every saturday morning i would encourage you to be part of that it's not just for those who have a sexual addiction it is for all guys Because we all struggle with temptation. And and not just sexual temptation, but temptation in other areas. And we need each other. We need each other as encouragement and as accountability. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You can often tell uh, by how a person looks. Just the look on their face. Whether they have a support system in their life. We need to be men who are sharpening one another. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I know some of you can't be here. Some of you can be here. And if you can't be here on a Sunday morning, you can be here on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. You need fellowship. You need other Christians who are praying for you and encouraging you. You need that. It's an essential work that we do here. Prolonged isolation will lead to spiritual defeat. Number two, physical and emotional exhaustion. We know that he's physically and emotionally exhausted because the first thing that God does is take a nap and have some food. Some of you, I release you. Go home and take a nap this afternoon, okay? You can always, you can always uh, re- record the football game if you want to watch the football game at 3, 15. Some of you need to take a nap. Some of you have been going too hard. Now we can obviously go in too far in the other direction, but some of us we're just we're, we're running 100 miles an hour seven days a week, like Elijah. I mean, he is he's he's got essential work to do. But he's exhausted. He's emotionally exhausted. He's physically exhausted. And God says, "All right, before you hit the road again, and before you come see me on, on Mount Horeb, you need to." Get a little bit of sleep, and you need to get a good meal. And then God re energizes him. He's he's spiritually exhausted. We know that because the angel of the Lord, God himself, anoints him with physical and uh, spiritual ability to even make this journey. Number three, how did he get so spiritually and emotionally exhausted? Obviously, the work itself, uh, the battle, the spiritual battle he was engaged in, which was an all day thing and and the culmination of three and a half years of prayer and waiting for God to move and to work. And then finally, after three and a half years of waiting and praying and being invested in this moment where he's going to stand before the king and the people... And the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, the enemy's own territory. He has this incredible victory and the people repent and the prophets of Baal are lined up and slain. But the enemy was still around. They weren't the only enemy. They weren't the boss battle at the end of the level. And so he wakes up the next morning and there's an even greater enemy that's the one pulling Ahab's strings, the one who has been orchestrating the worship of Baal and Asherah. She's still there and she's still after his life. And because of his unrealistic expectations, he's discouraged to the point of despairing of his own life. How often do I have unrealistic expectations? I'm a Christian. That preacher on TV, that book I read, that devotional I did this morning said that God wants me to have my best life now. Everything, if I'm trusting in Him, should just be great and rosy and and easy. God's going to do all the work for me. We have unrealistic expectations. Please understand, any of us, in this world, living for Jesus Christ, are going to have opposition. We have enemies because He has enemies. Jesus said, Matthew ten sixteen Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When you get attacked spiritually, don't turn on your brothers and sisters and Well, if this church had been better, if that church had been better, the world wouldn't hate me so much. If Christians weren't so disagreeable. If Christians weren't so hypocritical, friend, we're all hypocritical because we're all sinners. Paul himself in Romans seven said the things I want to do, I can't get myself to do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me? And he said, Jesus Christ. Thank, praise be to God, Jesus Christ saves us from that. So he is the solution for our hypocrisy. The reason the world hates you, yes, there are obnoxious Christians. And yes, I have been at times an obnoxious Christian, and, and I repent of that. But the reason the world hates us is not because of Christians who don't do what they say and don't always do what they think they should do or tell other people they should do, because that, that describes every single person on the planet. The reason that they hate us is because they hate our Savior. Amen. Jesus said, John 15, this is, this is not my opinion. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And Paul and Barnabas carried this message in the book of Acts to the churches where they were ministering, Acts 14, they were confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And before his death, 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived and we would say as we look at the world today prophecy fulfilled so don't have unrealistic expectations you will be opposed if you trust Jesus and here's the fourth thing distorted or incomplete perspective he had Prolonged isolation, physical, emotional exhaustion, unrealistic expectations, and distorted perspective. Incomplete perspective. You remember what happened to Peter in Matthew chapter 14 when they were in the boat and they saw Jesus coming on the water. Through the waves. They thought he was a ghost. And when they realized it was Jesus, Peter says, hey, Jesus, can I come walk with you? And he gets out on the water, and his eyes are on Jesus, and he's like, this is, this is awesome. This is awesome. I can't wait to tell everybody about this. Look at those waves, and look. Whoa, that was a big wave. What am I doing out here? And as, as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, where, where did he go? Right down. He sank. And instead of, Jesus, call me, he says, Jesus, save me. Because he took his eyes off Jesus. He had a distorted perspective. He had an incomplete perspective. The ways were really there, but that's all he was seeing in that moment. He took his eyes off Jesus, and his perspective became distorted. Whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on our, per, our, our circumstances, our perspective becomes distorted. It's incomplete. I'm not saying that there's not a Jezebel out there trying to take your life. I'm not in any way minimizing whatever trial you're going through today. That trial may be 100% absolutely real, but are your eyes on Jesus? Because if they're not, your perspective is distorted. It's incomplete. And whenever our perspective becomes incomplete, we exaggerate. We exaggerate the trial, the danger. And so, yes, Elijah had stood alone on Mount Carmel, but we're going to see in a moment that he's got, I'm the only one who's trusting you. I'm the only one and everybody's out to kill me. I'm the only one because whenever our eyes fall from Jesus to our circumstances, our emotions exaggerate the danger. We're going to see in just a moment that his obedience was not singular, that he was not the only one following God. So, any of those warning lights going off in your life right now, you may not be able to control the isolation. You may not be able to control physical exhaustion or emotional exhaustion. But if you're experiencing any of those, you need to know that you're in in danger of your faith faltering. So you're going to have to spend more time doing what we see God do for Elijah here. Now, how Elijah journeyed. Why Elijah ran, uh, how he journeyed. God is going to give him a special anointing to get him to where he needs to go. He gets to the cave in verse 9 because he is fueled by the food from the angel of the Lord. But one thing that isn't clear to us reading the text that would have been very clear to the people who were originally reading it was why did it take so long for him to get there? This was a 7-day to 14-day, to some say 10-day, 7-to-10-day journey. And he turns it into a 40-days-and-40-nights journey. He extends the journey. Now, there's a lot of different theories. Why did he take so long in his journey to get to the Mount of God? Maybe he was, some say, well, maybe he was imitating Moses. I mean, he's going to Mount Horeb, or What? what we would call Mount Sinai. He's going to where God delivered the law to Moses, where Moses was fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. So maybe he thought, you know what, I'm going to the mountain. I don't want to spend 40 days and 40 nights there. Let me take 40 days and 40 nights preparing my heart to talk to God. Maybe that's why. I think it's a great theory. We can't say that dogmatically. But here's what I want you to to see about the journey is that despite the fact that he had 40 days alone him and God as he's preparing his heart to talk to God and despite the fact that God had anointed him physically supernaturally to be able to make this journey on one meal he's still discouraged he still has a wrong perspective he's still frustrated and angry with God see What he needs is not just power. And what he needs is not just prayer, as important as prayer is. And you're not going to hear me say prayer is not essential. But what he needs to change his perspective is not just him talking to God, it's God talking to him. What he needs is God's word. And if you're not spending time in God's word, and as I say, 45 minutes on a Sunday morning is not going to cut it. That's not enough. If you're not in God's Word and hearing God speak to you, how do you know what you should be praying for? How do you know how you should be praying? And prayer then becomes very self-absorbed and it becomes very self-focused. We need to hear the Word of God. That's the only thing that's going to clear our eyes and focus our perspective on truth and not on our perception, how we feel about truth. So let's look at how God responded. Let's read verses 9 through 15 and then we'll unpack it together. He came hither unto a cave and lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him and he said unto him, What dost thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I like the way that... Uh, Tony Evans, in his commentary, emphasized in this verse, Tony says what we really should be putting the emphasis on is the word here. Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? I told you to go there. Why are you here? See, God knew why he was there, and God knew why he had come. But God asked him the question, not for information, but to get Elijah to reflect. Why why do you feel like you need to be here? You have been talking about how you stand in the presence of God. About how I am present with you. When you stood in front of Ahab, I stand before God, King Ahab. I'm not impressed with your crown, because I stand before God. God is present in my life. And when you talk to Obadiah, I am Standing before God. And now you think you have to come here. Some of you think you have to come to church to experience the presence of God. Now, we pray that the Spirit of God is moving this morning. And absolutely, there is a way, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is a way in which God moves when we gather that He does not move when we're not gathered. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are, when we are gathered, we are the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit is here. Jesus said, We're two or three are gathered together in my name. He is there with us in a different way than when we're by ourselves. But that does not mean that you got to come to church to talk to God, that you got to co- come to church to have a, an experience with God. God is present with you wherever you are. We need to be aware of that. And so, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Now that part's true. Here's where he exaggerates. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life. It was Jezebel. And those who were with Jezebel, wasn't everybody, but they seek my life to take it away. And he, God said, go forth, come out of the cave. Okay, come out of your your little cave that you've settled in and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. Now, what we find in verse 13 is Elijah doesn't obey yet. Isn't that like us? Isn't that so human? God, I I want to talk to you on my terms. I want you to listen to me. I'm not sure if I'm ready to listen to you yet. Isn't that what we do? That's what Elijah does here. He's angry. He's frustrated. God says, come out of the cave, Elijah. Go up on the mountain. He doesn't. So God moves. Go uh, go forth. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, just imagine yourself in that cave. The wind is passing by. God said, hey, come on out. The wind is passing by. God is shaking that mountain, breaking the rocks. Then God sends an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. He, boy, he's just 40 days and 40, 41 days and 41 nights ago seen God work through fire, right? But this time God's not speaking through the fire. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice and it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle he went out he finally obeys and he stood in the entering in of the cave and behold there came a voice and said unto him unto him and said what dost thou hear Elijah why are you here why are you here Elijah same question Guys, has you ever has your wife ever asked you a question and you answer and then she repeats the question have you ever had that experience what does that mean It means you gave me the wrong answer, right? That's not the answer I was looking for. So let me ask the question again. That's not the answer I was looking for. But what does Elijah do? He does what all guys do. Uh, I'm going to give you the same answer. Did you not hear me? I'm going to give you the same answer, God. I've been very, verse 14, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Again, all true. But now he exaggerates, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest anoint, Hazael, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Oh, I'm going to fix your problem. Talk more about that next week, Lord willing. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah shall... See, the key to reading those words is just pretend you know how they're pronounced. That's the, if you're ever asked to read scripture, just, just pretend that you know how to pronounce it. Abel Meholah shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hezeel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet when I have left me 7,000 in Israel all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So he departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed him by and cast his mantle upon him. Now, how did God respond? God listened, patiently listened to Elijah's frustration. Even though Elijah was implying, God, you have not done enough. You have not done enough, God. All the good guys are getting taken out, and now I'm the only one left. And they're trying to take me out too. God, where are you? Why aren't you working? God instructs him patiently to leave the cave. He didn't. God says, have you forgotten about my power? Let me show you my power. Three times he demonstrates his awesome power for Elijah. And then he gently says... Elijah, come out of the cave. Let me talk to you. And Elijah obeys. This doesn't mean that God only speaks to us gently, but it does show us that God wants to speak to you gently. Please hear the still, small voice. Can I tell you from personal experience, it's much, much better when you respond to the Holy Spirit's still, small voice than when you make God raise his voice in your life. Personal experience. Respond to the still, small voice. That's how God wants. He wants to deal gently. But he will raise his voice if you don't respond. And so Elijah comes out and he patiently repeats the question. He patiently listens to the same wrong, incomplete, distorted answer. But then God finally responds with more direction. And here's what he says, in essence, to paraphrase, Uh, Get back to work, Elijah. Get back to work. Don't let your feelings distract you from what I am doing. Don't let the fact that you feel like I'm not working because you don't see me working cause you to think that I'm not working. Your feelings are not truth. Your truth is not truth. Our feelings deceive us. Jeremiah 17, we have a deceitful heart. It's it's desperately wicked. It's, It's more deceitful than anything else that we face. Who can know it? God, he says, knows your heart. So you better listen to him. Focus on what he wants you to do. He says, Elijah, I have a plan. We'll talk about the plan of God, Lord willing, next week. He says, I have a plan. And by the way, you're not alone. I know you stood alone. I don't know where those 100 other prophets who had been hiding in a cave were. Sometimes you're going to have to stand alone. Sometimes you're just going to have to. People are going to let you down. Pastors are going to let you down. Your church family is going to let you down. Sometimes you have to stand alone, but you're not alone. And we need to be gracious, and we need to to realize there's times when I haven't stood up for somebody else, when I haven't spoken up when I should have, and so I have to be gracious and forgiving of others when they fail me. God is is working. He's going to bring the wicked to judgment. He is. His word says he is. It's not on my timetable. Now look at this Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein insanity that everybody's forgotten about. Even as his girlfriend's giving testimony. Well, don't pay attention to that. Implicating some of the most... Uh, powerful people in the world, the abject wickedness that they are involved in and that they think they're getting away with. God will judge them. I want them to do it today. That's what I want. And And I'm praying for that, by the way. I pray Psalm 94 down on their head. That's in the Bible because we're supposed to pray that way when the wicked get in power. And when the wicked abuse their power, we are supposed to pray that way. It's Psalm 94. Read it when you get home. But he's not going to work on my timetable. He's giving them time to repent. He's giving others time to repent. He is working on his own. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. But he is working all things together for good. To those that love him. So what do we take away from this? Let me give you a few things. We're going to cover these very quickly. What do we take away from this? How do we apply this to our own life? Number one, stay in the fight. Every day's a battle. Today's a battle. you got to stay in the fight. Just expect it. Expect. We have the, the holy, if you are a child of God, if there's a time in your life when you repented of your sin, when you trusted in the death And the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to God, is the only way you can be forgiven. And you believe the Son of God died for your sin and He rose again. And you ask Him to save you. You are saved. And you have the spirit of adoption who lives inside of you. You have the very power of God because you have the very person of God living inside of you. So stay in the fight. The battle may be won today, but don't think that that's means you can take a day off tomorrow. Maybe you lost to a battle today. Maybe you were spiritually defeated today. The war rages on. Get back on your feet tomorrow. Start today. Stay in the fight. He's sending us, Jesus said, "As sheep among the wolves. So stay in the fight. Number two, never confuse his strength with yours. Never confuse God's strength with your strength. Some of us have experienced uh, great victories. We've been used by God in a mighty way. God has done a great uh, uh, work because of, of, of how he used us. I'm sure it wasn't in the same dramatic way that God used Elijah on Mount Carmel. But hopefully you've had a, an experience where God used you in a, in a mighty way. If, if not, he wants to. But when he does, don't rely on that past success Don't think because I went on that missions trip that I don't don't have to do missions here at home. I don't have to share the gospel here. I had that great summer where I worked at New Life. That's wonderful. Keep serving. I've been involved in this church for so many years, Pastor DJ. You don't know all the things I've done and all that I've given. That's great. But don't confuse God's strength and how He used you with your strength. Because... He gets all the glory. Anything that we accomplish here is because He worked through us and did the work in us. And yes, we have a part to play. But listen, if you get complacent, complacency cancels consistency. You want to be inconsistent? Just get complacent. Number three, sanctify yourself completely As you're serving Jesus, let me read you uh, one passage of Scripture just very quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. God wants us to serve him, God wants us to sanctify, to be set apart not just in our spirit, but in how we think, in how we feel, and yes, even how we take care of our bodies. God wants us to be as healthy as we can be. I understand that that there are things that happen to us that limit our ability to be healthy, but all of us can make healthy choices. We can't all choose to be healthy, but we can make healthy choices with what we bring into our bodies, what, what we bring into our eyes and our minds and our ears and our hearts. So we have to sanctify ourselves completely. Listen, for some of you, that means you need to get more sleep. For some of you, that means maybe I need to change the way I eat. For some of you, that means maybe I'm too stressed and, and I need to scale things back at work. Or Listen, uh, some of these things are out of our, of our control, but where am I weak? Where am I unhealthy in my life? because every area of unhealthiness is an area of vulnerability that the enemy can use, just like Elijah. So sanctify yourself completely. Number four, trust God's heart and mind, not yours. Boy, I need this reminder every day. Trust God's heart, not this heart. Trust God's mind, not not what I understand, because his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And I see such a, a tiny, tiny part of what God is doing in my life, in my family, in the world. He sees it all. He is infinite. I'm just a teeny, tiny brain, human brain. So I have to trust His heart. God will judge the wicked. God, why don't you judge them today? God will judge. He works patiently, not impulsively. I work, sometimes, impulsively. There's a problem. How fast can we fix it? And sometimes God isn't concerned about how fast we fix it because He's not just working at one problem at a time. He's working on everything at the same time. And it all comes together. Our perspectives are limited. Our feelings are deceitful. Listen, God is patient with you. His patience for the wicked is that they have opportunity to repent. So we need to be praying for those who need to repent, that they repent. He patiently extends his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God says, I, the reason I haven't judged you yet is I, I'm giving you time to repent. I don't want to destroy you. I'm going to. For those of you who don't repent, and I know who is going to repent and who isn't. But listen, Luke 18, 7, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Trust God's heart and mind, not yours. And as we close, God is patient with you. Be patient too. It's one of the first characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, one of the middle ones. To be patient, to be long-suffering. God wants us to learn patience because He is patient with us. And He's patient with the world. And if he's patient with the world, and he wants us to be like, uh, he wants us to be like him, then we have to learn patience too. And there's only one way to learn patience, friend. I used to pray for patience. I don't pray for that anymore. I, I stopped praying that prayer a long time ago because I I learned. I was 41 when I got married. I I stopped, I stopped praying for patience. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. I, I I'm learning patience, God, on on my own without having to ask for it. God is patient with you, let's be patient too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your power, for your provision, your presence in our life. God, today we stop and thank you for your patience with us. God, there is not a single person in here who has not benefited from your patient dealing, either as a child of God or as an enemy of God who's being given time to repent. Father, if there's somebody here who is living in their sin, they have not confessed their sin, they have not turned from it to turn to their Savior, the only Savior offered any of us, Jesus Christ, if not trusted in the death and resurrection of their Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would come forward and learn how they can know that they know that they have eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, Teach us to be more like you. Thank you for your patience in that process. We love and thank you
0: in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps up today's message. We hope this has made an impact on your life and encourages you to follow and reflect Jesus daily. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesday nights at 6.45, or give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.